Your attention is precious. Pulled in a million directions for a million different reasons. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina works hard to make sure your health insurance isn't one of the many things distracting you from what's important. By making healthcare easier to navigate, we help keep your focus on the moments that matter most. Like dinner with loved ones. Letting you focus on you. That's the benefit of blue. Learn more at benefitofbluesc.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He is a former police officer for six and a half years in the city of Tucson, Arizona. He's the founder of the Tatum Report. He's a professional speaker and has a YouTube channel called the Officer Tatum uh, channel, which has 1.84 million subscribers. You know him as Joe the Policeman from the What's Going Down episode of That's My Mama. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Brandon Tatum. What's going on? Yeah, I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. That's the third time I've used that in an intro, but I thought uh, this of all interviews, it's the most uh, most appropriate. Uh, what what what's the the thing if there is a thing that you miss most about being a cop? Uh, I have to say the adrenaline rush. I mean, every single day on duty was just an adrenaline rush every day. You know, going to these call, going to call the calls, just being able to knock the calls off the board was was enough of adrenaline. But those code three runs. And, you know, chasing people and stuff that, that that was a very fun part. And it's hard to replicate that. My life is, yeah, is sort yeah. of boring <laughs> yeah, outside yeah. of policing. <laughs> I know it. I, uh, you know, coming from the military, I can certainly uh, certainly relate. There's just nothing, nothing quite like that. Uh, what's the most embarrassing thing that happened to you as a cop? Well, <laughs> Well, nobody knows about it. You know, I know about it. And if they ever pull the video, they'll find out, man. I, I pissed my pants uh, while I was a cop. I mean, I mean, full on, dude. I mean, my whole, I had to go change my uniform. And what happened was I was going, you know, I was working out at the time a lot and I was drinking a lot of water, you know, trying to drink about a gallon a, a day. And man, I had to go to the restroom real bad. And I was going to the substation from another call. I was beelining. There was nothing that's going to stop me. And and you know how you have to go bad? I was at that point already. Yeah. And then there was a missing juvenile that was out on the loose. I think she's like 13 years old. And I see her on the corner and I say, I can't just drive by this missing child. I got to do something. So yeah. I, I try to get some people up on the radio. Nobody will respond. Everybody's busy on the call. So I put... The, the, the kid in the car and you know it's all this paperwork and processing you have to do you can't just put a young uh girl in the car with you and drive her to the substation so i had to get on the radio get the sergeant and we get to the substation man and i am i'm doing the the the, the ants in the pants dance man 
and we at the holding cell at the substation, and I'm it's so bad, dude. I couldn't even lock her in the cell. I literally threw her in the cell. Didn't even lock the door. I, I had to run to the cell next to it, and I couldn't. I peed my pants. It you know soaked into my pants. Damn. I end up you know finally getting it out of there, and I'm peeing all over the floor and the, <laughs> the, you know trying to get my thing out of there. And uh, it was horrible, man. And the funny thing is, is right after I peed on everything, um, and I happened to have uh, leg tights on, like compression pants on underneath my my duty pants. So it kind of soaked into the pants, so it it wasn't very obvious on the outside. (laughs) And as soon as this this is going down, I grab some napkins, and I'm wiping up the floor. The girl is still on the other side. I ain't even locked the door yet. And somebody walks in, and they have no idea what just happened. And and, and I, I think I said something like, somebody must have spilled something in here, and I'm wiping it up. And they just walk on by, lock the door, and uh, it was humiliating. And I oh, finally man. got somebody to kind of watch it through the monitor so I can go and change my uniform. But nobody knows that this happened to me. But <laughs> all of this is on video. So it's, <laughs> if they went back and pulled the, the video from the holding cell, they would see me peeing all over the floor and everything. What would uh, – I mean, this was what years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, probably. It was probably 2016, maybe. I mean, would they still have video from back then? I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't know. think so. I don't think so. And if they did, I mean, it would be almost impossible to find it. They may still archive it from that long ago yeah. because you got to think we have people in these holding cells, and if somebody ever come back and, and say I was raped in a cell or something like that, we should we yeah. always yeah. should have the ability to come and extract that video. Yeah, yeah we you. logged them in and everything, so it, it'll all be tracked. Yeah. So, so that's the first time you've told that story. Uh, I told it probably to my wife and yeah. maybe one other person, but publicly, nobody's yeah. heard that story. Awesome. I did a video on my YouTube channel a long time ago. Yeah. It got like. 3,000 views. <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah, that'll be the tagline for this uh, thumbnail, I guess. Brandon Tatum pisses himself. Um, what's the, the most accurate racial stereotype for both blacks and whites from your experience? Man, dang, there's a lot of them. <laughs> like I know a lot of black way, ones. I, guess. I, think, I think that, uh, you know, punctuality is a, is a, is a stereotype. Black people are not very <laughs> punctual. And I'm a living example of that. And and I'll, every black person I know, I, I tell you what, I had a birthday party at my house and I invited one of my friends and that dude showed up an hour and 40 minutes after the party started. I mean, we, yeah. we everybody was going home and he <laughs> showed up at the end and I'm like, bro, you're the only brother that didn't showed up here late like this. So yeah. I, I think that's a, a pretty accurate stereotype. Uh, white people, white people can't dance. Uh, I can I, cut it up. I mean, what are you talking about? You talking about? It's, you, it's you and probably two other people. <laughs> but uh, I sometimes, you know, when I was in college, all my, all my white friends on the team, man, we would put some music on in the locker room because I played football in college. And, man, they were just so uncoordinated. It was, yeah. I, I was like, dude, y'all got three left feet. You know, how, how is this possible? And most yeah. of the black guys were dancing, and they can at least get a little rhythm going. But, yeah. Yeah. you know, of I, course, I, you know, I, there's. A, I know a lot of white people that can dance too. But yeah. I think those are two stereotypes that are that is pretty yeah, accurate. Closer yeah. accurate. accurate. I know, like, especially when you see uh, some of the, the older college coaches, like these old old white guys trying to dance, and you're just like, dude, that, like, that makes me want to throw up. Like, I'm embarrassed <laughs> for you. That shit is terrible. Um, man, oh yeah, especially when they're trying to vibe with the players. Yeah, the players like it's just man, new, it's like new hip hop dance, and the yeah. coaches are just this is super awkward. Yeah, I mean, it, it, just like Jesus, man, you're trying way too hard. Um, <clears throat> what uh, what is your morning routine on a, on a typical day where you're in town, not traveling? 
Uh, I'm embarrassed uh, about my morning routine because I think it's not really uh, a good example for young entrepreneurs to be structured. But normally, man, I, I, I stay up all night. Uh, for some reason, I can't sleep at night. You know, I think it was because of policing and and just my mind started going because I worked the night shift most of my career. And like I come alive at night, man. So and, and when the wife is asleep and the baby's sleep, I have time to focus and think and everything is quiet and I just go down the rabbit hole. So I normally wake up pretty late and I, I you know, I probably wake up around eight or nine o'clock. And I, first thing I do is I get on my phone. I get on my phone. I check my YouTube channel. I check my e-commerce store. I check all of my emails. And I kind of before I get out of bed, I scroll through topics that I think I want to talk about for the day. Um, you know, just kind of get brief myself on the news of the day. And then uh, obviously I get up, brush my teeth and I go make videos. And that's pretty much what I do. Or I do interviews and stuff during the morning time. Yeah. yeah. Do you, uh, you don't work out or anything right away or eat or any of that? Uh, nah, I don't. I normally don't eat in the morning when, as soon as I wake up. Uh, I may just have a glass of water to get the, get the body started. Uh, I haven't been working out lately. Um, I used to get on my bike and I used to ride my bike about 20, 20 to 30 miles every morning. But um, I haven't been riding, man. I gained a lot of weight because I've been so busy. And that's no yeah. excuse. I've just been lazy yeah. not working out and I've been busy. Sure. Uh, sure. So working out hasn't been something I, I do in a, early in the morning, <clears throat> but I think I need yeah. to. Yeah. 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 Um, are you originally from Arizona? I'm originally from Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, no shit. Oh, shit. Uh, right, right here in this stomping ground. We're in uh, in Dallas right now. But um, what uh, – yeah, what uh, what was growing up like? Uh, it was it was diverse, man. It was very interesting. You know, my mom and dad was split up. Uh, my mom was, you know, she didn't date the the most, you know, I, I would say reasonable individuals. I mean, she had a few good dudes in in and there, in you know, here and there. But you know, some of the guys she dated was hardcore, you know, gangsters. So we had a little exposure to that side. My dad was a firefighter. He ended up retiring as the fire chief in Waco, Waco, Texas. And he retired the first time from Fort Worth, Texas, as a as a, uh, a battalion chief. But anyway, so my dad had that kind of lifestyle. Mama had this lifestyle. So we had, you know, an opportunity to see both sides. You know, I got arrested at eight years old for smoking marijuana with my cousins who were all, you know, impoverished. You know, I wouldn't say completely illiterate, but, you know, not graduating high school wasn't wasn't rare. Um, so we had a, a a very diverse background, you know, and also, you know, my mom used to, you know, because she used to make sure we had everything we wanted, you know, we had what we need, but she made sure we had everything we wanted. And, you know, as some, something that I've never told people, it's funny that I never brought this up. Me and my brother used to really be into like skating and uh, he used to be in the BMX and I used to be in inline skating. Oh, and sure, I really thought sure. I was going to be a professional X Games skater. And so when I was younger, my mom would buy us these expensive rollerblades. I think they're like three hundred dollars back then. Yeah. And yeah. we used to go to the skate park and you know and have fun and do stuff like that. So my 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 background was a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of a yeah. white boy yeah. and a little bit of <laughs> a hood rat, you know. So yeah. Yeah. It, it it really made me who I am today. And that's a that's a, a crazy parallel because uh, strangely enough, I don't know that I've ever even talked about this actually, but. I was the exact same way. I mean, not uh, not so much on the hood rat side, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, I used to skate like a motherfucker though. But but rollerblades, like and like trick skating, and like you know, we, there was a college campus. The University of Northern Iowa was not far from where we grew up, which there's just tons of good places to skate around there. And so, like in in warm weather, we'd go there on weekends. In the summer, we'd go there pretty much every night. 
And same thing, like I had this really expensive pair of rollerblades that I, my parents, uh, you know, bought, and I, I mean, I used the shit out of them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't to the point where I was convinced I was going to be in the X Games or anything. But uh, but I was definitely that kind of kid where like that was a, a big deal to me, which isn't isn't uh, super common. That's uh, that's fucking that's a trip. Do you, do you remember the skates you had? Yeah, they were rollerblade, uh, the rollerblade brand. Um, oh. God, what were they called? Uh, they were one of the first um, rollerblade brands that actually, or models that that was that had like grind plates and and they were like made for trick skating. I don't remember the model name. Um, I can picture them in in my head. But my brother, my older brother, and I both got the same pair, and I mean we rode the shit out of them. Yeah, um, I can't remember which ones I had, but they were expensive. Like I think like yeah, three hundred dollars, yeah. and we, we used to grind. You yeah, know, we yeah. see the quarter pipes <laughs> and stuff. And the reason that I, I, I was I, I was really athletic, right? I mean, I could jump really high, so I could do a five. I could do a, a five forty just on the ground. I could jump up wow. and do a five forty. I do a seven twenty off a little ramp that's probably like you know damn, foot damn. two feet in the air. But I was terrified of uh, the quarter pipes and stuff. Like I wasn't really risky, you know what I'm saying? I wouldn't go yeah. down and jump up and do a three sixty backflip and go down, you know. And then I broke my wrist. Uh, at the skate park, and I quit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that half pipe shit is like this. I said, I'm done with this stuff. Man. Yeah, I mean that half pipe shit is another another level of uh, of ballsy, in my opinion. You know, I, I we we never did any of that kind of stuff. It was all like street skating stuff. You know, stairs and railings, yeah. and you know, shit that they that they model skate parks after. You know, parts of of real real society that kids would use to to skate on. That that was us. You know, but uh, yeah, it's a trip. That's funny. Um, you played uh, football growing up, I assume. Yeah, yeah after played. that, I got more serious about football, and I was I ended up being an All American football player coming out of high school. What uh, what position did you play in in high school? Uh, I played safety and running back. Oh, shit, shit, like Iron like Man, both sides, both sides of the both sides of the ball, ball most of the time. Yeah, no, nah, most of the time I was on defense. You know, they, you know, because I was, you know, the top player in the nation. My coach didn't want me to hog it. You know, he went the other players to get some shine. So I, I primarily play defense, and then I come in on the offense to score. I was score on defense too. You know, so yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, but I wish that he'd have let me play uh, both sides the way I wanted to. I think we probably would have won more games. But yeah. he was trying to be a socialist and let everybody get a, a trophy. So um, it kind of thwarted my my ambitions. I wanted to be a running back more than a safety. But yeah, yeah. So. Uh, a successful high school career and uh, recruited to – did you go to the University of Arizona or where uh, Where did you play? I went to the University of Arizona. Coming out of coming out of high school, I was the top player in the nation. Oh, sure. Um, sure. I was like top 78. I went to the U.S. Army All-American game. I played with people like Deshaun Jackson and Jonathan Stewart, who was, who was uh, you know, uh, a, a top running back for the Panthers. I mean, I can go down the list. Adamican Sue played on our team. Wow. Uh, a lot of these NFL twos you see right now, we all played in high school together. And so I had a scholarship everywhere, but University of Arizona was, was most attractive for me because Coach Stoops from Oklahoma had gotten a head coaching job there, and I, I thought it would be a great place for me to play. Yeah, yeah. What was the biggest uh, difference going from that jump up from high school to college, like caliber of player-wise, that, that was kind of the, the most surprising? Well, it wasn't um, – the caliber of player wasn't – the surprising part because on our high school team we had um we had nine D one players. Jesus. And we had four All Americans, including my brother was an All American the year before me. 
So we had a lot of dudes that were all D1 athlete type ability. So going to college wasn't a shock for me for athleticism. And I, out of all those guys, I wasn't even the fastest. I think I ran a 4-3 and a 40, and I was like fifth fastest dude on the team. Yeah. Uh, and so we had some burners, man. And, and But going to college, the acclimation to like actual plays, because we went to a hood school, we were all athletic. We didn't even run no plays, you know, especially on defense. It was like <laughs> just we had two things, cover blue and cover red. Cover red was like a cover four concept that they never taught us how to actually do. And then blue was our base set, which we had three DBs and then, you know, four linebackers and four uh, uh, D linemen. So we, I was a single safety, and I had like 120-some tackles. So wow. um, going to college, man, it was crazy. We had all kind of plays and run gaps and, and, and switches and all kind of stuff, and I did not, I could not keep up with it. It was, was, was you said that was – was that the biggest uh, biggest kind of surprise was how, how yeah. complicated the playbook was? How complicated the playbook was and how crazy the coaches were. Like, yeah. they were yeah. out of control, cussing <laughs> you out and talking to oh, really? you. Oh, really? Oh, they were out of control. At least yeah. at our yeah. university, they were out of control. Yeah. Did, did that uh, kind of stunt your desire to want to keep playing? Uh, I think the effects of my experience – at the University of Arizona did create an environment where I was like, man, I, I, I want nothing to do with this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this football thing. I, I just got burnt out, you know, being a great athlete and then watching your career dwindle away right before your eyes because it's somewhat because coaches, you know, put you in a doghouse. That's a real thing. Like, you get, you get in bad with coaches, they'll never play you no matter how good you are. And, and being such an athlete and watching them just waste my career away, um, it just, it, 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 I was burnt out, man. By the time yeah. I went to the, I was in the NFL draft in 2010, even though I didn't play much in college at all. Um, and then after I didn't get drafted, they, pro- you know, Oakland Raiders promised they would draft me. I had a party and everything, man. And they passed on me and it just broke me, man. I, I, I really loved football, but I, it opened me up to being like, I can't take no more of this. Like I really need yeah. to do something else. If these opportunities don't come soon. Wow. wow. Did you play safety in, in college or fullback? Yep. I play safety. Yeah. Uh, you seem big for a safety. <laughs> I'm bigger now. You know, I, 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 was a, I was considered a big safety at 6'2", 220. Yeah. Uh, um, well, no wonder you got now. 120 fucking tackles. Huh? I said, no wonder you got 120 tackles. I was in high school. I was I was a killer. I was knocking people unconscious and everything. But, um, yeah, I was a big safety. And, you know, I would have been a first-round draft pick, I'm sure of, if I'd have played and, and got some adequate playing time. And they got a chance to see – how athletic I was. And because I was so athletic, I was still in the draft. They, yeah, they, they yeah. almost drafted me. So so did you do the combine? No, I wasn't invited to the NFL combine. I did a pro day. Oh, okay. Where, you know, I didn't perform as well as I would like to. I didn't really have the training. And, you know, it was kind of like a downhill spiral after, yeah. you know, my senior year. Yeah. So what, you know, waking up the next day after after being broken from not, uh, not having the, the Raiders not follow through, what what then? What was that next day like, and, and what, what kind of drove you to, to make the decisions you made after that? With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Yeah, so I was devastated, man. I, I just, I was in disbelief. You know, I, I just thought that although my college career wasn't that good and it was such a tumultuous experience that God was going to come through for me. And when he didn't, it was just, I didn't know where to go from there. Um, my son's mom at the time, she was pregnant. So I had to make some grown man decisions, you know, football wasn't really panning out. So I said, you know what, I, I really need to look at other options because I'm going to be a father and I can't be chasing football dreams and, 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 you know, not providing for my family. And so that's what led me to policing because I had applied for everything in the city of Tucson. And policing, even though I really didn't grow up liking police, I didn't know nothing about police. I mean, that salary was good compared yeah. to all them other jobs and benefits. And so I applied, not even expecting them to ever call me back and, uh, <laughs> They ended up calling me back, and, and I wasn't even ready for that. I, I really thought they were calling me because I committed a crime or something. But, um, you know, and, and it, I did a ride-along, and then the rest is history with policing. Was the ride-along an eye-opener in, in any way for you? Like, did it dispel myths? Did it uh, confirm any? What what was kind of the takeaway from that? Uh, it, it, the ride-along changed my life. I mean, it was – and I say this, and it sounds corny, but – for the first time in my life, I saw a real hero in Officer Champagne. I'll never forget Officer Champagne in 2011. It was maybe 2010 when he gave me the ride along. I mean, that dude was crazy, man. It was it was crazy to see pol- what police actually do, and, and they they do it every day. I mean, this yeah. dude, we we I only could do a half a shift with him because I had another job at Verizon Wireless Premium Retailer, which ain't even a real Verizon. Um, so and I was making eight dollars an hour. I, I was minimum wage. I hated that job every day. I woke up to go to it. Um, but so I can only do a half a shift cause I had to get to work, but we first, first call, we changed the a, a, a old lady was on the side of an elderly lady. Let me be respectful was, you know, she was on the side of the road. Sean, get out. I get out. She, he, he helped her change the tire. I was like, this is a cakewalk. This policing stuff may, may not be as hard as I thought it was. The next call dude, uh, uh, a suicidal person. He's actively cutting his wrist. We go code three, and it's the first time I've driven code three with a police officer. I mean, we're going 70, 80 miles per hour down a residential street, dude. I mean, dodging people, you know, pulling up at the light, flying through the light, skidding through the intersection. And, I mean, dude, I almost had a heart attack just getting over there. And then we get there, and they they force entry. They kick the door in, and then they go in there, and, and Officer Champagne was able to tell get the guy to drop the knife, and he ended up saving the kid's life and all this stuff. And I remember getting back in the car like, dude, I, I'm like – I'm spent just from the drive over here. I can't even think straight right now. I'm flustered. And yeah. I wasn't even a part of this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, you know, I remember getting in the car and being like, hey, man, like, do you do this? Is this like an everyday thing for you? And he he almost laughed at me. Like, 
Yeah, I do this every day. What do you mean? And, dude, I was just, I was in complete shock. I was like, how can he endure this type of adrenaline rush? I'm flustered, and he just got back in the car like nothing ever happened. So that was a a crazy eye-opening experience for me. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels with, you know, the, the burnout rate and, and things that, that take place with military police, first responders in general, it, really anybody in that, that type of line of work that experiences that, that huge rush, uh, you know, f- from your adrenals, like it, it does wear them out and over, uh, kind of satiate them or, or make them over fire to a point where it does like, it's fucking hard on you. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you experienced that in, in the time you were there, but uh, what's the fastest you ever drove uh, while you were a cop? Were they, t- they top out at one fifty-five? Yeah, we we were at one hundred and forty. So yeah. we, we yeah. didn't tap it out, but we were at one hundred and forty. And I think the reason we didn't hit over that because we were in an older police car. You know, and that thing was barely <laughs> hanging on. Barely. Uh, yeah, we were in a high-speed pursuit, and uh, you know, me and my FTO, he 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 was driving at the time. I was in phase three, which is like you know, I don't know how you, if you know about the phases, but there's four phases in field training, and you have to complete all four phases. The fourth phase, you graduate and you could become a solo police officer. Uh, but I was in phase three, and, uh, you know, there was a dude that did a carjacking while we were in brief debriefing, ready to go home. He carjacked somebody. A, the air support unit was up. We had five officers following him. And so my FTO was like, man, we're going home. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they got it. Yeah. And then the yeah. fool decided to, in the high-speed chase, he decided to go right in front of the police station. Oh, so wow. once we heard him coming down the, the Miracle Mile and, he, you know, Romero and all this stuff, he was, he was coming towards the police station. My FTO was like, get in the car, get in the car. And the funny thing is that we get in there, and our policy is only two patrol cars can chase at a time. <laughs> we had ten people really? chasing really? them, you know. And um, and right when we open up, right when the gates open, this fool is passing by all ten cars, and then the, tra- the sergeant gets on, the commander gets on the radio and say, you know, uh, spike strips authorized and pursuit authorized. And so we jump in. We're like eleventh place, and at this point, our policy is that at a red light, we must come to a complete stop. Now, bad guys obviously don't follow that policy. They got on the frontage road. We jumped on the freeway. And so all our cops were stopping at every light on the frontage <laughs> road. This guy is like two miles in front of everybody because he's going 80 miles per hour blowing through lights. We jumped on the freeway, and we hit 140, and we ended up uh, getting in front of him. We missed the spike strips the first time, and then uh, we ended up pit maneuvering down the road. And then, of course, oh. you know, he met the asphalt in, 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 a, in a very fashionable way. Yeah. And that was the yeah. end of, that was the end of it. Yeah. The, the former safety in you, I'm sure, played uh, played a beneficial role in your ability to go hands-on with people, huh? It was tremendous. I mean, people were just at, blown away when they would run from yeah. me, and I'd catch them <laughs> within, within seconds, and yeah, they would yeah, literally say, awesome. dude, you're the fastest police officer I've ever seen. I'm like, yeah, because I used to play football, you know? I used to run them down on the, on the football field, so. so. That's, I mean, that's awesome. You, know, you, out of, you out of shape criminals, yeah. they just <laughs> off of me. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Was uh was going through the academy from a physical standpoint was that kind of a joke after being a college football player? Uh, it was, but it wasn't right because by the time I went through the academy, I was kind of falling out of shape from football. Uh, when you compare one to one, I mean, the academy was less physically demanding as football. It was more mentally demanding. Like, I mean, they played these psychological. It's like in the military. It's paramilitary. Yeah. They literally take you the first day and you sit in the classroom with your t- with your class A on. Uh, I don't know if they call it class A. It's a, it's, it's a tie in a, in a white shirt, and they have you set up, and they come in there, and somebody's really nice, and welcome, everybody. And then drill sergeant come in there, get in the crowd. 
and you know, I got a picture. It's funny. I should post it. A picture of my young self, first day at the academy. My freaking tie is this long. Dude. <laughs> I mean, it, I didn't know how to tie a tie. I'm yeah. sitting there like this at attention, and yeah. they just yeah. grilling me. And they know I'm yeah. like the football player, so they're yeah. just riding you a little me, extra, you know, like, extra, making me drop and all this other stuff. Yeah. And, and so it was a mental shock for me, too, because the psychological games they used to play with us, you know, they made us crawl in the mud, and then yeah. we had like – a minute to go and change out of our class A, muddy clothes, fold them, and then change. And they knew we would never accomplish it. So once we ran out late, they smoked us again. So yeah. you know what I'm yeah. I just didn't yeah. know. I thought they were serious, you know, but, yeah. you know, yeah. it's a whole uh, mental uh, game that they play with. They yeah. You. Uh, how, how long is the academy? For the, for our some? academy was 17 weeks. Mm-hmm. So our academy was pretty short compared to, like, the yeah. academy in Texas was like six months. Yeah. Okay. But then you, with the four phases afterwards, I mean, the total time from you start the academy until you're by yourself uh, out it's on patrol is about a year. It's almost yeah. a year because you got 17 weeks in the academy, then you got eight weeks in post basic, and then you got another 22 weeks in field training. Yeah. And so you you pretty much at, a, at about a year. And, and you can be rephased too. Like, so if you don't go through field training and you get rephased in, in one of those phases because you're not competent enough then yeah. you can be extended all the way out to 27 weeks. Um, and if you don't make it past that, they fire you. But And yeah. then after that, you're still on probation for another, you know, uh, you know, year and a half. So, sure, you know, sure. so yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a grueling, long process. And it's and the most stressful thing I've ever done in my entire life yeah. was going through field training. That is the, the craziest, most stressful thing I've ever done. Even more so than being by yourself. Out on patrol. Awesome. When you by yourself, the, when you make it to that point, it is. I mean, it's like going to heaven. You like, thank yeah, God. Yeah. There's the, you know, I'm, I, because they, of course, they brainwash you, and it's so strict, and they they try to get you prepared. So when you're on your own, you don't make mistakes, and you're not out there. You know, your officer safety is down and stuff like that. You get killed. So in field training, it's just so grueling, and you and you and you don't know what you're doing when you first get out there. I don't care how much academy you get when you first get on the street. You got to make a real arrest. Somebody pull a gun on you. You got to be ready to go, and you don't know nothing about the investigation because you have never experienced it. And so there's a lot of learning, and then you got a guy there judging you. And then when you drive for the first time, because in phase one, some FTOs let you drive. Most of them don't because they like, okay, let me show you how to drive first before you get us killed. Yeah. But uh, my FTO was like, no, get in the car and drive. And I remember there was a suspect that we were looking for, and he was going this way, and we were going that way. And I stopped at the light, and I'm waiting there. He go, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm stopping at the light. He, you are the police. Turn the lights on and t- do it and bust a U-turn. You know, I was afraid to, to, to make a traffic violation. You know, So, you know, it, it was a. Uh, it was a very interesting uh, thing for me, very stressful. But when you get on your own, man, it, you can't wait to get on your own. You're like, thank God yeah, nobody's yeah. in the car nitpicking me every step of the way, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so department to department, you know, with there being such a a wide variance of, of the way that different departments handle that process, it sounds like, uh, at least with Tucson, that by the time you got to be by yourself, you felt like the training was, was pretty adequate to, to where it prepared you to be able to do that. Cause some of them, you know, that seems to be one of the hotbed topics, I think for a lot of, whether it's anti-policing or the, the coin term, which I can't stand reimagining policing, but just that, that, that there's not enough training to prepare some of these officers to be put in the positions that they are. And that's why they're making the mistakes. I'm curious, having been through all of that, do you feel like, at least with Tucson, that, that they adequately prepared you to be alone and in some of those situations? 
Well, you never, you never, it's like you never, you can never prepare for real life in death situations. You know, you can only do scenarios so many times before stuff hit the fan and you really can die and other people are dying and people are bleeding out and you got to do, you know, you got to put the, the chest seal on and quit clotting and stuff like that. You can't teach that. You, you yeah. mean, you can simulate a fake scenario with your friends that you know that's a lieutenant and, you know, you're like, whatever. But in real life, it did hit the fan. It's real. Yeah. Like it's game time. And, and they prepare you enough for you to then learn on your own and be capable in a reasonable manner. But you just can't, you still, when you get out of FTO, you, you kind of start over again. And I think that police officers don't really become efficient until like five years on the police department. It's, it's, yeah. it's just yeah. because you, it's so many different scenarios that you go through that, that, that you can't even plan for. Like you can't plan for a decapitated person on the freeway. When you, you know, you, you put up on a call and a guy's head is rolling down the freeway. It's like you can't really plan for that. Like, what do you do? They didn't tra- change you, teach you this in academy. Or you get a woman who's been, you know, sexually assaulted and is, you know, whatever the case may be. And you have to have that tough conversation with a real person. You yeah. know, you got to answer these questions. You know, did he penetrate? Or what? All these other things. And it's very uncomfortable. But yeah. you, you, you only get that through learning by being exposed to it. And the, and the problem is, is that officers who are in like LA County officers in Tucson and Phoenix, some of these major cities that have a lot of crime, you get so much exposure that when a shooting happens more than likely you are capable. Some of these other places, they go through the Academy and they, they are in these rural areas or they're in these areas in, in pretty decent neighborhoods where they go 20 years and there's never been a shooting. And then they get into a shooting and they panic because they've never been exposed to that, that level of stress. The public have no idea about what that's like. I mean, they Monday morning quarterback to their blue in the face, but yeah. it's nothing like what the body does. And you know, being in the military, what your body will do under immense stress and fight or flight. Oh, know, yeah. Sometimes oh, yeah. some of that stuff you can't control. Like you, yeah. you yeah. your vision is different. You know, it's a lot. Yeah. So I, I guess the, you know, one of the main questions that you hear uh, in the media and really on, on both sides of, of that kind of Monday morning quarterback or second guessing is that, you know, what, what is kind of the, the answer, I guess, for the situations where you see uh, things happen and, and they go horribly wrong. And, and I mean, I'm not naive to the fact that, you know, sometimes just bad things happen and, and, you know, no matter how pre- prepared you are, how well trained you are, sometimes like it's a split second judgment call and, and you make one that maybe wasn't as good as another one you could have made. I mean, that, that happens, but, but there's also kind of a, a basic level of competency that I think sometimes is missing in some police departments. And, and I'm curious to get your take on on what the answer is, if there is one from, is it training? Is it selection? Because I know, like, at least in SEAL training, it's called SEAL training, but it's really selection. You know, the, the BUDS training, which is six and a half months, has like an 85% attrition rate. So most guys that start out don't make it, you know. Um, but the, the the nice thing with that is is that the guys that do, now now when, once these guys check into SEAL teams, it's very easy to trust that those guys are, are solid dudes that you can trust that you know are going to be there when you need them to be. From my perspective, and, and I've not been a, an active police officer, you know, full-time or anything, but it, it seems like maybe the selection criteria could be a little higher. Uh, you know that that initial step in, so that you're not bringing in guys maybe that uh, you know that that are are questionable. What what's your take? No, I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, it, every police department is different, and some police departments are more strict than others. And I think that that selection process is a problem because you know you have a lot of affirmative action hires 
You have people needing to hire more women. And you have, you know, departments that are depleted and their attrition is so high that they need to get officers on the, on the field, uh, you know, in the field or they're going to be screwed. They're not yeah. going to have enough people to answer calls of service. So then they push people through. And we, we're experiencing this right now. We're going to see a wave of bad police officers, in my opinion, because what happens when a lot of police officers leave and, uh, you know, through whatever means, they are in desperate need to hire and they can't get good candidates. So what they do is they start to dumb down the qualifications oh well you can use marijuana within a year or well you don't have to make an 80 on a test you can now make a 65 i saw this happened in tucson they, yeah. they were letting people make like 40s on a test we had to make 80s on a test and, oh. and you had to make above 80 to be competitive um if you were going to even get hired so they begin to dumb down the qualifications and they get a lot of these officers in there that may not be equipped but they should do a better job like you said it may not be as stringent as, as the seal um, team because some you know you know why but some some departments you know it's you just pushing paper you know what i'm saying yeah. you're not yeah. you know a killing machine um but i do think that they should make sure that they have the most qualified people i would say this i don't know what most of the police departments are doing but it, it is very difficult to become a police department at least in tucson and some of these major police departments with the background investigation and you know the psychological evaluation the polygraph, you know, and it 40, it's a 40 page document I had to fill out plus another three or four months of, of them rigorously going through all of my contacts. I had to put the people I live next to, I had to go and find their, the people I live next to and put them on this list so they could call them as a reference. And, you know, we talked to a psychologist, I mean, a psychiatrist, you know, we went through the whole thing to make sure you're not crazy. However, there's always going to be people that slip through the cracks. I'll never forget this guy on the, on the police department. He was squared away, ex-military. The dude was squared away, uniform press, boot shine every single day. He was married. He was the he was the model guy. He made it through FTO. Some of my FTOs was his FTOs, and they if they passed them with flying colors. You will never expect, yes sir, yes ma'am. The dude is squared, and then he ended up raping some prostitute, some nasty prostitute on duty. You know, and and then was dumb enough to put the condom that he used in the trash can at the at the at the booking uh the booking place where in the restroom where only officers can use. You had to get the key and only officers go in there. He put the he didn't flush it down totally, put it in the trash can. And we had, you know, um a detection system where we have GPS on our computers. So they tracked his car, you know, and Oh, listen, and everybody was dumbfounded. Like, this guy raped somebody? Like, for what? And his wife was yeah. beautiful. He had a great family. Uh-huh. And it's like, and some snaggatooth, nasty bullet hole in the thigh <laughs> prostitute yeah. that smelled like fish and, and alcohol. <laughs> I, you know, I, you know. I, Fucking like, military I guys. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, man. That dude was sick. Yeah, that's crazy. But it happened. Yeah. Unfortunately. No, for sure it does. I mean, you know, one of the questions that I, I wanted to ask was how, how do we as a society fix the, the kind of the, the PR nightmare that exists with police officers of, of it being such a, a difficult thing to get people to do it and, uh, you know, getting kind of the, from a societal standpoint, you know, a level of respect that kind of the way that it used to be because it seems like it's on a, on a downtrend. But I, I honestly think, even though I understand that that the selection sometimes gets bumped down because they're they're missing people, I think that's still the wrong answer because it, it's the it's the lower quality police officers that are going to to further give police departments a bad name. And like, I'd rather have not enough guys than have the wrong fucking people in that line of work. I mean, I don't know if you saw that 
uh, just here recently in, in California, they're allowing illegal immigrants to become fucking police officers in, in, in California. Like, you don't even need to be an American fucking citizen, and they're going to let you be a cop? Like, how, how fucking dumb is that? Uh, I mean, how, how do you not see how that could go horribly wrong? It's this woke, it's this woke mentality. You know, everybody needs a trophy. Everybody deserves opportunity, and they scared to turn people down. You know, we in our police department, we were we were probably one of the best trained police departments in the entire country. However, we didn't have enough firearms qualification. The qualification wasn't strict enough, and also PT wasn't strict. We had officers that got on the department, and you had to pass the PT test, but you don't have to ever pass it again. And so they fat and sloppy. They can't jump over a fence. You get into a fight, they're out of breath. You, they yeah. can't run. They can't chase nobody. You know, it, it, they're just pointless. They're just feckless people that are putting us all in danger because you know what? They can't fight. Yeah. So if they get into a tussle, they got to shoot somebody because yeah. they, they're gassed out. So, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you with that on 100%, you know, up front. And I think there should be no delineation between men and women. There should be one PT standard. If yeah. women can't do it, they shouldn't be on the job. Agreed. There should be one Agreed. academic standard. If you can't do it and you're too dumb, then you yeah. can't be on the job and that, that's it. What that will do is that means they have to pay you more because yeah. then you are more qualified people. But, like, some police probably you don't have to have a GED. Yeah. And I'm not saying you're an idiot because you got a GED, but you don't have to pay a person with a GED that much money, um, which is – then you'll get you start attracting people that are, that are probably not elite. Um, I wish they would not be afraid to just call it what it is and say, "Look, you are not qualified. You are not built for this job." Yeah. And I think we'll see a lot less of these police fallouts that we see, which damage the relationship with the public. But I think that what we can do as a society to make this better is that um, you know keep supporting police that are doing the right thing and standing up for them when you know it to be right. And also police departments need to have a PR firm because I was a, I was a spokesperson at the Tucson police department, but there's a lot of things that we technically can't say and all this other stuff. And, and therefore we let the narrative grow because we know that we shot this guy cause he pulled a gun. We have the internal information to know that. We don't say anything because we don't want to interfere with the investigation. And therefore, they run a narrative that the man was shot in the back 46 times and he was unarmed. And then we just let it grow. And then once it grows, people believe it. And then once the truth come out and they say police brutality is unchecked, it's like, well, y'all dummies don't know that he had a gun and it's on body one camera. You just listen to the narrative that was put out. So if they can kind of have some impartial firm that has pertinent information and they can at least you know, kind of uh, quell the fire initially, um, I think that that'll be a lot better of relations. Like Michael Brown, remember that whole Michael Brown thing? Mm -hmm. Hands up, don't shoot. The police yeah. knew that that was false, and they knew that Michael Brown attacked the police officer for his gun because there was a, fire, a shot that went off uh, through the, through the uh, driver's side door of the police car. But they didn't say nothing for weeks, yeah. and the narrative was built, you know. you know. So Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and it's refreshing to hear you say that. I mean, you know, from – and that's one of the questions I also had prepared is, is that there's a kind of a strange and, and difficult gray area of police and, you know, whether it's, you know, BLM as an organization and, and just kind of the movement or, <clears throat> uh, you know, stigma associated with unarmed black men being shot by cops that, you know, is portrayed as something of, I mean, I've even heard people use the term genocide and, and ethnic cleansing and, and shit like that associated with it. And to me, I'm a big data guy. You know, to me, like, look, look at the numbers of, of anything, you know, and, and when you look at numbers and percentages, it, it's a very, very small 
you know, portion, if you, if you look at, you know, the population coupled with how many police officers there are, how many engagements there are, interactions there are, there's millions of them, you know, and you boil it down to percentages, it's like it, it's less than an anomaly. You know, does it happen? Yes. Uh, is it unacceptable when it does? Equally, yes. But to say that it's this, like, fucking pandemic-level problem is disingenuous, and, and, and further than that, it's, it's harmful, you know, because it really undercuts the, the police's already difficult job of, of what they're trying to accomplish. I'm curious, from your perspective, having grown up with, you know, as you put it, some, some hood rat aspects of, of childhood, also having been a police officer, what is your kind of perce- uh, perspective on BLM and, you know, unarmed black men being shot at, at disproportionate, uh, you know, rates? And kind of what, what is your, your take on all that? Yeah, I think they've been selling us bull crap for a very long time. When I was young, I hated the police um, because of lies and stupidity. I mean, that's just what it was. That's why I go so hard now because after becoming a cop, I said, whoa, cop just pulling you over because you're black? Uh, we, ha- we have no idea what color you are, even in the daytime. And, and we don't even care. We really run in the plate and trying to figure out, are you going to kill me or not? Nobody cares about your race because white people kill cops as well as black people and Hispanics and women and whatever you do, handicapped people, people who are disabled still shoot cops and stuff like that. So we don't care. And, and after being exposed to that and being around other cops, it's like, dang, I, I was kind of ignorant to this fact. Um, looking at the hard work that police officers do on a day-to-day basis and the stress they're under and how many lives we save, I mean, dude, I mean, we're the only thing, we're kind of keeping the, the stitching that keep the fabric of our country together. And, you know, I, I just think that, Knowing that we've been lied to is is astronomically um, devastating to the community. And also, when you just look at the numbers, like you said, you're a numbers guy. When I go around the country and I speak about this and I survey people, you know, you got people in, in, in California. We did a thing, a man on the street thing in California, and we said, how many people do you think get shot by the police every year? You think it's about five to ten people? I mean, unarmed. Yeah. Five to ten black people unarmed every year? Or you think it's like more like two or three hundred? Or you think it's like two or three thousand? These fools, t- oh, two or 3,000 easy in L.A. alone. And I'm like, yeah. y'all got to be the stupidest people in the world. Uh, in, in the entire country, there's about 14 unarmed black men that get shot every year. And you talk about justified, I would say 99% of those are justified uses of force that result yeah. in the death of a person. Yeah. And there's 40 million black people in this country. So you took yeah. 40 million black people and only 14 are killed unarmed and 90% of that is justifiable uses of force. What are we even talking about at this point? Yeah. And we act like police are the biggest threat to African-American people. When black people kill, let me give you a number. And this is verified, fact-checked, whatever people want to call it because I looked it up. Um, more black people die at the hands of other black people within a six-month period any given year, uh, within a six, seven-month period, then the entire recorded legacy of lynching for 68 years of oh. lynching was like thir- the, the 68-year uh, lynching total. Now, there were some lynching totals that was not calculated, but according to the record that we have of lynchings in the United States of America over 68 years, it's like 3,400 lynchings of black men. There's about 7,000, 6,000, 7,000 black men that are murdered every single year in this country. So if we're going to talk about even that is not even on, on genocide level because there's 40 million black people. You're talking about 7,000 people getting murdered out of 40 million. Um, obviously, heart disease is, is a genocide that we're experiencing. But even then, you should be arguing about how do we stop black people from killing each other because that is like a disproportionate amount 
uh, from police. And, and I'll just do this. Let's go a 10-year period. And this is what I tell people, and it's shocking to them. I said, just do a 10-year period. In 10 years, at average of 14 unarmed black men per year, you have 140 black men that have been murdered by police. 10-year period of black-on-black violence, you have about 70,000 black people that have been killed by other black people. Tell me which one is more concerning, 70,000 or 140. Come on. That's yeah, yeah, I mean, it, well, yeah, it's a, it's a staggering statistic. And so take, you know, people like Al Sharpton as an example, right? Is it a, a guy like that who platform wise, position of authority, re- respect within the community, et cetera, is at a pretty high level? Um, why is there not more of, of that coming from him? Like, I mean, if, if the goal, sorry, if, if the goal is, is truly to, to protect young black men in this country, then why wouldn't a guy like that who actually has the ability to, to do something look at data and say, okay, here are the top five things that kill young black men in this country. Police is not, not on there. It's not even close to that. So, like, where is he at on that? And, and why isn't he talking about it? It's race hustling, right? So there's financial gain in creating this facade <laughs> Because you know they got to pay him to do the eulogies. They pay him to show up at the, do the press conferences. Um, all these other attorneys, their civil rights attorneys, they get paid massive amount when they get the city to pay out. Even though the city went wrong, they settle with these people in court and they pay them hundreds of millions of dollars. And so that is, is advantageous for them to push that narrative. They don't want to tell the truth because then they will be out of a job and people will be looking at them saying, Reverend, what have you done for us lately? You ain't done nothing. So it's, it's, you know, I know people probably listen to me say that and they're like, oh, you just saying, but let's keep it real. Why isn't Al Sharpton and and Jesse Jackson and them spending more time when you have a bullet hole in the head of a a 14 year old girl that got shot in the drive by? Why aren't they in these communities saying, hey, this needs to stop. We're killing our own people. Yet they stand outside uh, to talk about Tamir Rice, which was a justified use of force. Unfortunately, the kid died as a result. You know, uh, they talk about Philando Castile and some of these other people, which were justified uses of force. Unfortunately, they subsequently died. They spend more time talking about this. They even defend people that they know are are guilty. You know, you have a guy pull a gun on cops and they defending them. There's a there's a guy in the stupid NFL had the full name. His name was Aaron something. I forget his I forget his name now. This fool did a drive-by shooting on Facebook Live. And the time of his death, he recorded on Facebook Live a high-speed pursuit where you could see him pull a gun out and shoot the shoot at the cops. And they they did a whole vigil for him. Wow. Uh, 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 you can go down the list. And it, it, Stevie Wonder can see that these people are not in it to, to, to pursue excellence in the black community. And as a result... How has the black community been progressing, these inner city communities? I'm not talking about black people in general. Um, these inner city communities, the, the places where we claim we need the most help. How are they doing lately? It has been on a decline since the 60s. Yeah. So so, so what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean so I mean, I guess I, it, it's still confusing to me. Like if, if I'm Al Sharpton, like even with the race hustling, I get that there's a, a financial motive from that standpoint, but they're they're – it would seem like there would still be an incentive to to fix the problems as well. Like you know, what, why can't you do both? Um, because your money dry out, right? If you were if you were a car manufacturer or a car a mechanic, how do you keep your job? 
right? So it's, you, like, it's like big pharma with keeping people sick. Right, so right. Big, big pharma. Big. big pharma is probably the easiest recognizable thing. It's like, no, they don't want to cure cancer. They rather treat you for cancer because it's a lifetime of a financial gain. They don't want to yeah. cure it. They don't want to eliminate it. They don't want COVID to go away. They don't want any of these things to happen because then they run out of employment. They don't want the black community to be flourishing and doing well because then people ain't going to need you. Yeah. What, are you what are you preaching? You go, oh. The white man is going to have to take, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. you know, that's what, they, that's what they're doing. It's just like these anti-cop groups or whatever the case may be. There's a, there's a guy, he, he literally sickens me. And he's a nice guy off camera. But on camera, he's a former police officer. His, his channel is Police Brutality Matters. I mean, this guy literally is running out of content because there's not enough police brutality situations to even talk about. And, and the guy just mashes police. And even he's wrong about, I would say, 50 60% of the stuff that he's posting. And if he were to change his message, he loses his whole identity. And so I think that... Um, it's an incentive for some of these people to be kind of the uh, the solution to the problem that they are facilitating. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, yeah, again, I think the the big pharma parallel is is pretty apt that way. Um, from from your perspective within within the black community that way, what what do you think the the answer is, or what would your advice be? Uh, you know, to people to, to try to, to get that shift because to me it's a, it's a daunting task when there's those types of numbers of people, you know, black on black, uh, you know, violence that way. Like how, how do you stop that? It's culture. A lot of it is culture. So the people who are leading like Al Sharpton and some of these other people and some of these athletes have a, a level of responsibility. These people that are, are, are thrusted into the limelight should be acting with the attitude and, and and the personality and integrity that they want these young people to be acting in, you know, if if young if if these, some of these celebrity type people and leaders will come out and say, pull your pants up, stop sagging your pants, show up and be professional, have a good you know have a good first impression, you know we don't speak ebonics in this country, you know if you want to get a good job and you want to be taken seriously, you need to learn and understand proper English and be able to articulate yourself, uh, articulate your points and enunciate your words. If people in positions like NBA players and, 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 and these movie stars were, were making a movement to get young people to position themselves to be successful in this country, to love this country, to understand the value that they add to this country, I think we will see a cultural change. And if these older, you know, like I said, these people that are in positions of power and role models will say fathers are important. So take care of your kids. Quit sleeping with women and running away from your responsibilities. Young women, quit sleeping with Tyrone and you know he ain't about nothing. He ain't never had a job since you met him. And then you got three kids with him and he nowhere to be found and you sad. It's not the way we should be living our lives. It's a better way. And and then also historically, what did black people used to do in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s? We were not like we see black people today. The culture was not the same. It was hard work, dedication, and innovation and, and being a part of this country. Martin Luther King and none of these black leaders wanted to, you know, uh, secede from the union. They wanted to the union to, to keep up with his, the principles in which it promised. And when we have leaders doing that, we have people being examples and stop making excuses and promoting thugs as, as martyrs. I think we'll see over the next 30 or 40 years, we'll see a cultural change. And then I feel like that the community, you'll see less murders. You'll see people, you know, actually building their communities better. But until then, it's going downhill fast. 
Well, so, I mean, it, it, you bring up a, a really good point that way, like especially with, um, you know, th- there's obviously the Al Sharptons, the Jesse Jacksons, but I think the LeBron James, the Colin Kaepernicks, you know, the, the people that, that pop culture-wise are in a position to be very, very influential. Uh, you know, rappers, I would say, you, you could argue, you know, one of the most influential for, for that uh, aspect of society if, if they're drawing their inspiration from from that uh you know it's it's not a, a big surprise that things aren't going uh you know as well as they could have you uh talked to met or ever reached out to to kaepernick and i'm curious what your take on his uh his path and journey uh has been i've never reached out to him i think he's a complete coward and i think he's he's you know brainwashed and, and, but, but this money and what he's doing. So it is nothing I'm going to say that's going to have him turn down a $3, a three $4 million contract with Nike or a yeah. Netflix deal where he's saying the NFL is comparable to slavery, and then now he's trying to play in the NFL. It, no, matter, no amount of me talking to him is going to convince him that that money ain't making sense. Um, but I think that people like him are very dangerous um, because they're illiterate. They, they are, are ill-informed, misinformed, uninformed. I don't, I don't know whatever the case may be because they come out of the, their rear ends with all of these statistics that don't make any sense. And many of them can be the solution to the problem, but they don't do anything. I mean, just imagine if these NBA players signing $100 million contracts. Just say that f- four or five of them who grew up in the same city would just invest a little money in building up their city and, and creating opportunities instead of buying jets and, and you know, Y'all can fix the problem. It only take a few of y'all millionaires to create a billion dollars worth of 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 help in the community, and it's a tax write off. But 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 they don't want to do that. And, and I'm gonna say this: I know that they are influential because when I was a young kid, my father wasn't the the greatest influence when I was a kid. I didn't want to be like my dad going to work every day and being a hardworking man with integrity. I want to be like Tupac. I want mm-hmm. to be like Michael Jordan. I want to be like all of these people who had fame and fortune and were on the celebrity status. I want to be like them. So if they said smoking weed is cool, I want to be cool like them. Let me give, let me just give you one more example. Why do you see these players that are worth millions of dollars? They Most of them go bankrupt and they look like thugs and they act like thugs. They got tattoos on their neck. They got gold teeth in their mouth. They sag in their pants and they living like, like hood rats. And they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It's because they never let that culture go. They never let that stuff go, and the, and, the, and the culture is so influential in their lives that no matter how much money, fame, or fortune, or wealth they get, they're going to always be connecting to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, it's very destructive. That's a great point. I mean, you know, and I, I think there's a – in hearing you kind of walk through that that mentality, I think there's also a parallel uh, in, in those guys too. There's an element of, of kind of – kicking the victim can down the road on behalf of, of the race, so to speak, um, in those positions, the, you know, LeBron being a pretty good example, uh, Colin, same thing, you know, LeBron, I think is probably better because he's been so successful for, for so long, whereas Colin really wasn't, um, you, you know, so you take a, a guy like LeBron, who's one of the best basketball players ever, um, you know, and, and who is also e- extraordinarily influential and very active, and influential on, say, Twitter, as an example. And, and you know, during the George Floyd stuff or, uh, you know, in support of, of Kaepernick or a lot of these other things that, um, you know, that he's doing, I think that that, that similarly kind of props up his his brand, his street cred, his his financial gain from, from all of this stuff. Um, but it, it does beg the question, like, if these guys 
take Jay-Z, um, you know, LeBron as two kind of influential in different industry examples. If both those guys turned over a new leaf and both said, okay, hey, from now on, like, this is the straight and narrow that, that we're going to try to, t- uh, you know, project and influence or whatever, do you think that their popularity would tank? No, I think that they probably feel that it would. I don't think it would. It would. They would become more trendy. People would just want to follow their lead. You know, they, you know, I got Young Savage tattooed across my stomach, man. I, I used to have gold teeth in my mouth when I first went to college. You know, it's they're, they're heavily influential on the way you think. You know, you see somebody like Russell Wilson too. Russell Wilson makes young men want to be successful and want to be smart and articulate and not a gangster he's buried to sierra so you know young boys are like i could be like him and be a straight narrow guy and clean cut Carlton, like they would say from the first prince of bel-air and i could still get the hottest <laughs> woman in the i could get the hottest woman in the industry yeah. um so if these young men will come out and, and set the tempo and be an example all of the young brothers will begin to follow Um, The fact of the matter is that, you know, LeBron James and them are being thrusted by society. And and I'll say this, and and what happens with Colin Kaepernick and a lot of these other players is that when they get rich, they feel bad for other black people. So instead of them feeling like, oh, I'm here now, let me help you rise. They feel like I'm here now. How dare I left them behind? Let me get on a level. Let me act like I'm with the people. Let me talk about oppression and, and white supremacy. You they're not experiencing it. LeBron yeah. James, white people are literally kissing his toenails when he go anywhere. He can't even go anywhere without getting mobbed by yeah. white people that yeah. love his dirty draws. I mean, even <laughs> Colin Kaepernick and all these other people, like they don't experience no racism. I'm afraid to, you know, I'm afraid to walk out the house. I'm going to get killed. LeBron James probably have never gotten a speeding ticket. And I bet he's been pulled over before. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they, they too busy fangirling him. So, yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. You know, I think it's the guilt that they feel. And I know how it feels, right? I'm, I'm very successful. And some of my family members are, 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 are impoverished. And it's not a good feeling to go back home and you know that you are doing really well and they're struggling. And, you know, you can only help them so much if they're not going to help themselves. But it's a, it's a feeling where you're like, I don't want to act like I'm better than you. I don't want to forget where I came from. But that's not the attitude we need to have. We need to say, let me bring you up to where we're at now and understanding that where you at ain't where we supposed to be. Yeah. Instead of saying, I remember back when I was in the hood and I'm still from the hood. It's like, no, no, you're not from the hood. Get out of there um, and do better and do better. Yeah. Well, I think you you just said something that I think, you know, resonates a lot is that, you know, you can't help people that don't want to help themselves. And I think that's the key component. A lot of times in, in any regard, whether it's uh, government, whether it's, uh, you know, cities where it's predominantly white cities where it's predominantly black what have you is is that when there's this investment into opportunity is that that only goes so far and and if it's not uh equaled to or met with the example being set then i think it's a waste of money and in most cases it just gets burnt through the same way you see you know our government and military spending trillions of dollars in other countries and and it just gets wasted and, and it's corrupt and and uh, and ultimately, you know, does very little little good that way. I think that, you know, to your point is that, is that guy, these guys who are in these positions have to set the example and say, and instead of me just trying to give you stuff like it's, you know, socialism, it's I'm going to set the example and show you that there is a, is a way out of it. Um, you know, there's a very common kind of theme that you see a, a lot of times, um, you know, that, that speaks to it being more difficult 
being a, a black person in this country than it is a, a white person. I'm curious, do you, do you find that to be true? Do you think that there's merit to that? Well, I, you know, I, I see the brainwashing because I was brainwashed to believe that. I don't think it's any merits because how would I know I'm not white? So you know, how am I going to say your life was easier than mine? You know, I don't know yeah. what you did, to, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's not my experience either because I know a lot of white people that had it way worse than me. Some of my police friends, I mean, they would tell me stories about their life, and I'm like, dang, bro, you had it way worse than I did. We yeah. had childhood friends growing up, Dustin and Derek, two white boys, um, and my mom used to give them our hand-me-down clothes. So – I don't think that's – I think it's racist to project because of the color of your skin that you have whatever experience that you claim you have. That's yeah. Just because you're black don't mean you grew up in poverty. Not every black person live in poverty and, and from the hood. You know, yeah. you got black yeah. people that live in middle class and also very wealthy black people. So, you know, I think it's bull crap, man. And it's a ploy for politicians and politics to divide us and, and, and get us to, to be at each other's throat. They got to find yeah. a reason to, you know, separate us because they can't say – you know, uh, you know, two men like you and I get together, and, and although we have different skin colors, we have a lot of commonality. We can be together and be a strong force, but they can't have that. So yeah. they got to say, you know what, all that you went through, Brandon, you know, the white guy over there, he has it's way strong. easier than you, just yeah. so you know. Yeah. And yeah. if he want to go up the ladder, he going to go higher than you because he white. Yeah. And then they want to create animus between you and I. And it's like, that's not necessarily true, man. I've had a, a cake life being a black man. I was the spokesperson of the Tucson Police Department with only two years on the police department, which had never happened before. Yeah. And I'm a black man. And the police yeah. department is primarily white and Hispanic. We had like 12 black people on the police department of like a thousand officers. Like, come on, man. Like, um, I had a full scholarship to college. I didn't pay for a single dime. I used to go in there and get all the new books. <laughs> I didn't even get to use books because I'm not paying for it. So I said, give me all the new books on, yeah. on their dime. Yeah. They used to give us, they used to treat us like kings at the University of Arizona. So my personal experience has never been anything like that. And to be honest, white people have helped me in my life more than black people have, yeah. you know, excluding my father. But, uh, you know, when I, when I want something or I'm striving to do better and, 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 and there's a lot of white people that come alongside you and say, man, I believe in you as a man. I believe in your mission. I want to help and support you. It, I never got in a, a situation where it's like white people don't even want to help me out. Yeah. I, the black people don't. No, the black people don't want to help me out. It's normally the white people that see good in you and they're willing to, to, to help you get to the next level. Yeah. I'm not saying in all cases, somebody going to watch this and be like, Brandon said black people don't never help each other. It's like <laughs> uh, my, with my experience, it's been a lot yeah. more white people that have been instrumental in helping me outside of my family than black people than by far. It's, I mean, it's not even close. Yeah. Um, so anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's awesome to hear you say that. I mean, I one one thing in particular is that I don't know what it's like to be you. You know, to me, I find a, a frustrating irony in in a comment such as like, "Well, you don't know what it's like to be a black man in America." It's like, yeah, because you hear that a lot, right? Um, yeah. It's like, no, I don't, but. Newsflash, like you don't know what it's like to be a white guy in America either. Right. You know, right. so like if, you know, the, the, where the irony comes in, it's like if you don't want me to assume shit about you, don't assume shit about me either, you know, because like I, I can tell you, I'll ask you, I mean, like there, there's there's parts of, of every major city, you know, Fort Worth where you grew up, Chicago, fucking Harlem, you name it, like me looking the way that I am. Do you think I could just walk walk through neighborhoods there and get left the fuck alone? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. No, no, no. you got to be crazy. You, we've never seen white people. If you do see them, you know, you, they're the police or they crackheads, and they're yeah. not welcome. Like, yeah. you get what I'm saying? Like, people be looking at you crazy. Like, what's this white boy doing out here? You know, music is a big, uh, big inspiration and a big part of my life. I listen to it all the time, whether I'm driving, riding a motorcycle, working out, walking, uh, what have you. And one of the things that, uh, you know, frustrates me regularly is getting a good pair of, you know, headphones that, that have a high quality sound that are easy to use, um, you know, but that don't cost a fortune. Um, I've recently partnered with, uh, with Raycon. And uh, I really, really like these these wireless headphones. They're Bluetooth. Uh, they're everyday earbuds. They look, feel, and sound better than ever. Uh, and they're half the price or even less than a lot of uh, other brands that uh, that are popular out there. So um, I've been using them now for a couple of weeks. The <clears throat> battery life is really good. It uh, has 32 hours of standby time and, and eight hours of play time, which I have tested um, you know, I've used them all day long, basically, and, and not had to re recharge them. They come in a rechargeable case. They don't take long to charge to begin with, uh, and they, they sound great. They're super comfortable, uh, and they're just really good. And uh, I want to extend this uh, call to action for you guys. Mic drop listeners can get 15% off of the Raycon order uh, at buyraycon.com slash mic drop. That's buyraycon.com slash mic drop, and you save 15% on an already uh, very reasonably priced uh, set of wireless earphones. That's buyraycon.com slash mic drop. Yeah, and, and so to me it's like, you know, you hear a, a common complaint like, oh, you know, if I walk in an elevator, this old white lady clutches her purse or whatever, and it's like, dude, if I walk in, in parts of the country, I'm going to get my fucking head cut off. You know, it's like, so so it, it, it does work both ways. I think both are, are equally shitty deals and and yeah ideally in this country like i think everybody should be able to go wherever the fuck they want and be left alone like to me that that is the way it ought to be but uh, i think when when there's this perpetuated you know victim mentality on on any side whether it's you know class race sex uh culture you know what what have you is that uh, it, it just sets people up to to basically make an excuse as to why they couldn't do something and you know, to me, like if, if there's a, an ability for people to come here from another country that barely speak the language with fucking 30 cents in their pocket and, you know, 20 years later they have generational wealth and own several businesses, like if they can do that, anybody born here can do really whatever the fuck they want. Like there, there's no shortage of opportunity. And, and lastly, I would say, like, I don't care who you are, you can always find somebody with a better deal. You can always find somebody with a worse deal too, you know. Um, I mean, I don't care what what kind of upbringing you had. There's always people that you could say have it, have it worse. But, you know, to me, I, I just think it's not seeing the forest for the trees and, and focusing on anybody else. It's like just focus on the shit that 
that you can control and maximize the opportunities, create opportunities, what have you, and, and take advantage of them instead of blaming people for your problems. I just I don't understand that that mentality. But hearing you talk about kind of the the incentive uh, from some of the leaders, uh, such as you know Jackson and Sharpton, uh, you know it, it certainly makes more sense. I just you know I don't know how how I guess for you know for anybody listening. How would you say, you know, this is what you can do as an individual to, to help get us from where we're at to where we need to be? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's a great uh, observation. I think that you, you hit the nail on the head is that in life, no matter who you are, where you're at, you get cards that are dealt to you. You got to play those cards to the best of your ability. That's it. You don't. You can't look at the next man and say, well, he got ace. He got aces. You know, he got queens or whatever. You, you got the cards you got, and you got to play them. And your cards in America are better than anybody else's cards in anywhere else in the country. You yeah. got the best hand. His hand may be a little better than yours, but you still got the best hand. The, yeah. the, the poorest people in the United States of America are, are, are some of the wealthiest people in the world. The poor amongst us get free food, free health care, free housing. I mean, God dang. And, and they yeah. get free housing in the best country in the union. I mean, in the yeah. world. Yeah. So, I mean, dude, focus on yourself. Focus on what God has given you. And then pursue excellence and be the best version of yourself. Not everybody's going to be Jeff Bezos. Not everybody's going to be LeBron James. Be the best version of you and then go out and worry about everybody else. The problem is that everybody want to be an activist for somebody else's life because it helps them divert from their own problems. The, yeah. the white man is doing it. No, 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 bro. You, you, you and your wife don't even get along together. Why are you talking about Black Lives Matter and police officers yeah. when your kid, when you can't even, your kids out here smoking crack? Yeah. You need to work. Worry about yourself and your family. Get that right, and then be an example to help other people. And also, this is the point that I always make when I speak around the country. I say, quit being selfish. Your life is not about you. It's not just about you. The things that you go through, you ought to look at them as saying as they are propelling points to make you better. The things that you go through that you may perceive as negative, they are for you to learn from and you to help somebody else to not go through or to learn from in their trial. You know, mm -hmm. I've experienced a lot of uh, adversity, but, but it ain't just for me. It's because I can now better help another young person through that adversity. I should be thankful that I have chinks in my armor. I should be thankful that... You know, I have, um, you know, trials that I've been through. And I don't know, chinks in the armor may not be a good analogy, but I, I should be thankful that I've been through things because I'm now better equipped to help other people. Yeah. It's really that simple. Yeah. Those are, those are all great points. And, uh, you know, I, I wish there were more, um, you know, prominent members of our society that are in even more positions of, of uh, influence that that thought that way and, and espouse the same same points that you do. Um you know, one other thing I had written down. I know we're running running uh, over time, but uh, racial slurs get get brought up a lot, as far as you know the impact that they have, and uh, you know certain people saying them versus not, and, and what have you. I'm curious to get your take on on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I still feel weird if I hear a white person say the n word, you know, but mm -hmm. my feelings versus logic is is the is the debating factor, right? Um, I think words are just words. If somebody called me the N-word, me, I don't care. It's just like you calling me stupid. I'm not stupid and I'm not an N-word. So what, what, is you, what are you actually saying? As long as you don't put your hands on me, I don't really care what you do. Um, but people have gone up and beyond to be so offended and, and wussified in, in the sense of saying, because I'm black, 
I can call other black people the N-word 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I can turn that music up in my car and they going in, 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 in all day. And if a white person riding down the street is rapping to a song and say the N-word and I'm all offended. I'm, I'm ready to cry myself to sleep and racism is live and well in the country. I think it's all stupid. People need to stop being cowards. It's just a word. And if a word hurts you that much, you're a coward. And I think that people should also be mindful of not, you know, using words against other people too. You know, like I don't call people racial slurs, um, you know, even though it don't bother me as much, I don't call people racial slurs because I have respect for other people. Um, I may call them hypocrites. I may call them uh, ignorant, stupid, because those are all, you know, terms to describe their behaviors. But I don't call people racial slurs because I don't want people to call me a racial slur. But, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, people need to stop being soft and realize that these are words and yeah. these words have no power to, unless you give it power, power. Yeah. I think 20, 20, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I think that's the, uh, the most significant point is, uh, I mean, they're all super valid and, and, uh, you know, refreshing, but the, but, but is exactly that is that, you know, you, a, a word, especially, I mean, actions are, are a different story, but a word only has the amount of teeth that you allow it to have. You know, um, you know, th- it's a totally different example, and, and it's a little apples to oranges, but I think the principle is the same, is that one of the things that, that uh, is very consistent in the SEAL teams, when, when you first get into it, there's an onslaught of shit-talking, right? Like, like the, the guys are, and it's probably similar in the police force, you guys fuck with each other nonstop, right? And, but, and I, I would bet, you know, I've had plenty of former teammates that have become cops, and, and I know there's, there's a lot of similarities there, but like, if there's something where if, if your your teammates or, or partners made fun of you of something and you you allowed them to see that it bothered you, that the floodgate comes open to where like they just won't leave it alone now, you know. And, and so it's like the, the key to not getting fucked with is to be stoic and unflappable, right? And, and because if you if you don't give somebody the ability to piss you off, guess what? Then they're gonna stop trying because it, it's a fruitless endeavor, you know. And, and so to me, like that, that simple principle is, well, there's two of them really, is that one, if you don't want a word used, then don't use it. Like to me, that, that's pretty common sense, right? Because there, there's no quicker way to, to build resentment and confusion than, than to do that. You know, if, if Jay-Z, as an example, uses, you know, racial slurs nonstop and then gets mad when somebody else does it, like wh- whether you say it's cool because he's black or not, like the fact is, is that it's inconsistent. You know, and to me that that, uh, you know, reduces credibility no matter what you're talking about. You know, when, when, you're, when you're inconsistent and hypocritical about something, it makes you look bad. I, I don't care what, what anybody says or, or what, what it is that you're talking about. And the second thing is that if you allow something to anger you, then you've lost. You know, take, take arguing with somebody. I mean, that's one of the, the most textbook principles of, of not losing an argument is don't let the other person piss you off. No matter what they say, like if, if you never lose your temper, never raise your voice, it's impossible to, to have somebody own you in an argument that way. Even even if, uh, you know, from a, a um, the, the actual content of the argument is is lopsided, it still gives you an ability to be able to, to engage with that person and not seem like you're an emotionally unstable child by being, you know, pissed off at, at something that they said. But anyway... Um, you know, t- tons of good good perspectives on on your end, and uh, it, it's been a, a really really awesome and refreshing conversation. Uh, where can people get uh, get a hold of you, and if they want to come have you speak, or, or kind of what what are you up to now, and what's the biggest uh, biggest
biggest thing you want to kind of put out? Uh, yeah, so if anybody uh, – and, and again, man, thank you, and thank you for your service. And, and this is one of the reasons why I think most men should serve, at least, you know, because there's so many valuable lessons learned in the service, yeah. you know, the love for country, you know, obviously sacrificing for other people and learning these team-building things that, that you will get in real life. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you can make it through boot camp, you can make it through your buddies just trashing, talking you all day yeah. long, you can make it in the real world like, yeah. like it's yeah. nothing, you know. So, yeah. But uh, if people want to uh, – you know, reach out to me, follow me, whatever. Theofficertatum.com. Theofficertatum.com. You guys can go on there if you want to book me for stuff. If there's a booking tab on there, if you want to watch my podcast, my YouTube channel, all of the links, my book uh, that, I, that I wrote, Beating Black and Blue, Being a Black Cop in America Under Siege, that book is on that, on that website. So everything can be found there. And uh, I appreciate you, brother, for having me on, man. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to come back and, and, and continue this conversation. Yeah, same here. Uh, next time you're in Dallas, if uh, if you have the time, I'd love to have you in in the studio and and uh, you know keep oh, yeah. keep going with it because it's uh, it's always good stuff. I'd I'd like to send you uh, a copy of my uh, my latest book called Unfuck America. I'd love to get your take on it. But <laughs> I like that, man. Yeah. yeah, send it to me. I will. <laughs> Thanks again for uh, taking the time out of your schedule. It's been great to get to to know you and and chat, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Uh, for the listener, appreciate you uh, tuning in. I hope you guys uh, got something out of this combo. I know I sure did, and, and uh, appreciate guys like Brandon coming on uh, to give uh, some well-rounded perspective, and uh, it's just super, uh, super fascinating and, and valuable for me. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you didn't, choke yourself. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.